Hey there, welcome to the About Your Body podcast. I'm Rachel Holt, the founder and one-woman show behind About Your Body. I'm a visual designer who has an ever-growing interest in the bio-female reproductive system. There is a lot of stigma surrounding the bio-female body, and I truly believe that to reclaim our bodies as our own, we need to understand how they work. I want to use my design skills to empower people, especially young girls, to learn all about how incredible their body is and what it can do. On this podcast, I'll be sharing real people's stories and bio-female experiences, as well as conducting interviews with healthcare professionals to break down the complexity of how the body works. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on stolen land, the land of the Gadigal people. I pay my utmost respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their continuing connection to Australian land, sea and sky. Australia always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd also like to say that About Your Body was created as an initiative that stands for the rights of all people, including everyone who identifies as a woman, everybody who has or has had biofemale bodily characteristics, as well as intersex people, gender non-conforming people, and Indigenous sister girls and brother boys. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the About Your Body podcast. Today we are talking to Amanda Fisher-Katz-Cohane and you are going to fucking love her. <laughs> Amanda is based in northeastern United States. She works as a writer, an educator and an activist. So she devotes a lot of her time to her role as a chief operating officer of My Sexual Biography. And My Sexual Biography is a non-profit organisation dedicated to ending the stigmas and shame surrounding sex and sexuality. So right up the About Your Body team, Ali. Uh, Amanda holds bachelor's degrees in journalism and communications from UMass Amherst and is now working towards her master's degree in early childhood education from Antioch University. So today we talk all about what it is like to own your sexual story, what a sexual story is and how it can help empower you and gain agency over your body. I do just want to point out that in this episode, we are talking a fair bit about abortion. It is toward the end of the episode. Uh, if you'd like to skip across that bit, please go ahead. We also discuss miscarriage and sexual assault. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. It was a blast. It's quite long, just be aware, but it's so worth it. So I hope you guys love it and I'll talk to you in the outro. Hi everyone, today we are talking to Amanda, the COO of My Sexual Biography. Thank you so much for being here and making the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on today. You're welcome. I have no doubt that our conversation will be incredibly interesting. You are a really awesome woman. <laughs> I would love if you could just start off by explaining to the listeners what My Sexual Biography aims to achieve um, and what your role at My Sex Bio is. Yeah, so my sexual biography started because Abba Carmichael, the founder, had been wondering about, you know, we give all of this time and energy thinking about these aspects of our life, like what are we going to wear in the morning or what are we going to have for dinner and what have I, what are my interests, my hobbies, things like that, but no one's really, or at least not in like the general um zeitgeist we aren't talking about our sexual interests our sexual uh preferences or reflecting on our sexual story at all and so what we aim to do 
is um, provide the resources and the space to do so. And we really believe that in reflecting on our sexual story, and I'm sure we're going to get into that more and more, but um, what that is, but in reflecting on your sexual story, you are creating um, a greater sense of inner peace and an inner peace that then radiates outwards to your loved ones or your relationships and then out into your communities and then out into the world, really. Um, so we really want to, our big goal is that we want to achieve like global peace through sex education. Wow. My wow. role in that um, is I, I'm the COO and I'm kind of transitioning what I'm getting my fingers into and like, um, cause we're totally, a, we're definitely a startup still. And we're, we're all kind of doing a lot of things here. A lot of people are spinning a lot of plates, but I, um, started off creating all of our content. So all of the research, cause everything we put out there, we do in-depth research on, we want to make sure that everything we are saying is based in research and facts. And unfortunately there's not tons of research out there on these kinds of things. Um, so we hope to be able to um, move that forward in the future. But, um, so I was doing all that research, developing all our content, um, creating, um, these cohesive newsletters every month that were on a different theme and kind of informed our readers about this new way of looking at your sexuality or reflecting on your sexual story. Um, and I am a writer by trade. And so that was really my space. And, but because I was so involved and so interested in learning so much, um, that position kind of grew into a more organizational um, position. So now I'm helping us develop these bigger projects. So we are developing this book that's going to be a reflect a guided reflection journal that takes everything we've been doing, which are these educational aspects, these reflective aspects, the self-care um, all of that and putting it into this journal to help people start reflecting on their sexual biographies, kind of bringing it all together and figuring out like, what is our one thing? Um, so that's my role is, is these bigger projects and figuring out what our role really is um, moving forward. Wow. Thank you. That's amazing. I love that. It's kind of like we weren't allotted a space to talk about that growing up. Um, I suppose perhaps maybe younger people, now have that I highly doubt it maybe though I'd like to hope um and so rather than thinking oh, I wish we'd had that in our childhood and that's it I feel like my sex bio is really taking action and and being like well we didn't have it growing up but we can have that now like it's never too late to um what was the wording you used reflect on your sexual story I think I love yeah. that my gosh yeah. and yeah I would love to get into that it's amazing to think about what a sexual story is, etc. And yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> oh, I was going to say that I think um, I'm a millennial and I definitely didn't have a space that was like a safe space to talk about my sexuality or even realize I needed that. Um, and, but I will say that I think Gen Z is starting to change the game a little. Um, they really like know what's up and I super admire them. Um, they are they are telling us what they need and, and demanding it and that's awesome. Um, I don't think that they have the resources um, to do it, I to, to give their sexual story, their sexuality, their understanding their body. They don't have 
the infrastructure to do so, but they are seeming to, they're starting to seem, hmm, let's rephrase that. They seem to be starting to um, recognize the need for it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Boo. I'm Gen Z. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're I'm totally right, I think. And especially when it comes to, um, especially when it comes to consent, I think that's one thing that we really now, um, I think Gen Z, but I would probably say, you know, Gen, are Gen Y and Millennial the same? I'm not sure. Um, but so, your generation, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. have been great at paving the way for um, sort of just the understanding, for making known the understanding that sex is not just a chore that you have to do. Um, and though you may not have been taught that growing up, um, the work that all of you are doing is like it's it's dumbfounding it's amazing <laughs> and it's so important um but I think my sex bio is taking it like a step further and I love your kind of moonshot goal of like we want global peace and there's a quote on the um my sex bio website I think it's just on the landing page that I love and it says we believe commanding our sexual biographies is a vehicle for global peace when we are not sexually repressed suppressed or depressed we can fully express ourselves and live in truth mm -hmm. and yeah i would love to know what a sexual story means for you and even if you wouldn't mind going into it what does owning that sexual story look like yeah <clears throat> so that that quote is something that just is our like guiding motivation our guiding um tenant i guess uh and a sexual story or your sexual biography we we use those interchangeably because i think when we say sexual biography um you know it's 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 not like um a universal phrase but when you say sexual story it kind of starts to insinuate what it is um and so your sexual story is, I see it as threefold, like there's three layers to it. And so the first layer is um, everything that's like all the events that have taken place in your life, like literally a timeline of your sexual life. Um, and that doesn't mean like every time you've had sex, that means that um, the time, like how you were taught about sex, like the, your interactions with um, sex education, your uh, interactions with masturbation and um, how you were introduced to that and then how you um, your relationship with that with um, the your the times you have had sex definitely are a part of that um, but yeah it's just beyond just those moments and also sex is like I'm not talking just like penetrative heterosexual sex I'm talking about like any sort of intimate act with another person or with another um, multiple people or with yourself um, and so these, these moments um, in a timeline are like that first layer. So you could start writing your sexual story by just like thinking to the, your birth and puberty and like what happened during puberty and how you were taught about your body and then moving on. Um, but then there's other things that come into play. So then the next tier I see as um, your preferences, your um, sexual identity, uh, what makes up your sexuality, th that's all part of your sexual story. So um, you might not know the, that yet. So by reflecting on these <clears throat> moments in your life, maybe you start to understand what was good and what was bad. 
um, what you're still unsure about and what you want to explore. And so that's another layer of your sexual story and kind of could be a tool for the future. And then the third like circle, if we're moving in a, I think everything in life is a circle. So I'm seeing this as like a growing orb, but um, there's your sexual identity as like a larger whole, like who are you? And so how do your um, likes and dislikes and your trauma and your um, wonderful experiences, how does that all play into who you are as a a human being that's greater than just your sexuality. So <clears throat> that's what I think of when I see, when I say your sexual story. And so reflecting on that um, reflection is like of the things that have happened. And then when you command your sexual story, when you can own what that is and un- owning it means understanding it and being able to use it to then move forward in your sexual story because you're always in the sec you're always in your sexual biography continuously writing it and as you move forward being having the being able to command your sexual story means that you can make choices in the future that are best for you and that are best for your mind your body for those around you in relationships that are the healthiest for you um so but you can't move forward in a safe and healthy way if you don't understand the things that have happened in your past. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, I'm speechless. <laughs> Thank you for all that. It's, it's so incredibly um, important that we, I'm trying to think of a word other than own, but I think own is actually a really good word for it. It's so incredibly important that we own what happened to us what happened for us what we did to ourselves what etc like everything in our story um or our biography thanks for explaining that those words are used interchangeably um and I think that I guess I can only speak from the experience of being like a cishet woman (laughs) is that um you're definitely taught to suppress that um not think about that Uh, definitely ignore it put up with shit that's like not something you should have to deal with Um, do you think things like even sexual harassment where there's no touching at all where someone yells out a vile comment to you like do things like that do you think they play into the sexual story for yourself as well yeah and so that actually brings up a good point that there's so much um, that comes into this and of course, like, you're not going to just sit down and, like, reflect on every single potential influence on your sexual identity before you can move forward and command it. It's always a learning game. Like, you're always reflecting on more things and learning more things about yourself, just as, like, I mean, you're changing all the time anyways. But, um, so, yes, definitely harassment, like, different forms of trauma, body image issues that, like, like, I know that I have so many things um, in regards to how I see my body that affect my sexual experiences and I'm um, working on those and like just acknowledging them and understanding how they influence you. So I know that working through trauma can be whatever that trauma is. I I mean, that could be an assault. That could be like a cat call. It could be anything. Um, it could just be like a negative comment about your body. Um, 
and working through trauma can be really hard. So when you're like, when we're talking about reflecting on your sexual story, it's not necessarily like working through trauma. It's just like acknowledging how that might've affected you so that you can better um, understand what you need. Uh, but also on top of that, I would say, so each month at my sex bio, we have a different theme and that is like a theme that we're approaching sexuality through the like lens of. So right now it's, um, we're talking in February, 2021. And our theme is, um, senses, sex in the senses. So we're talking about how there's so many ways you might interpret it. They're like purposefully vague so that we can take a lot of different angles and um, come at it, Mm. come at it from a lot of different angles. Um, So we're talking about sex in the senses. And then last month we talked about abortion and how that might influence someone's sexual story and um, your sexuality moving forward. And then we've talked about other things like sex and cannabis. And we've talked about sex and um, racism and sex. And uh, we've talked about a lot of things, sex and light uh, lots of things. So, so many different, there's like a endless nuances in which to reflect on your sexual story. Wow. And <laughs> I've been loving the, um, sex and the senses newsletters. I didn't realize you wrote the newsletters. Are you the one that does the Monday manifestos? I write some of those, uh, but we have a, um, another wonderful, wonderful girl on our team that is making those. And, um, but yeah, so the a lot of the content moving forward um, probably won't be written by me because I'm going to be working on this journal, but all of the <laughs> newsletters, yeah, I've written those. Oh, they are great. And I just love the Monday. I can't, I can't remember if they're Monday manifestos or Monday manifestations. I really enjoy getting them. <laughs> they are really good. <laughs> uh, Monday manifestos, although sometimes yeah. we're like, we're switching around the wording so that it says manifestations because... Um, we're just trying new things out all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, reality of running a business. <laughs> um, what impact do you hope that people owning their sexual biographies or sexual stories will have, will have on people? Sorry, I'm going to rephrase that because I just like butchered that. Okay. <laughs> so what impact do you hope owning their sexual biographies will have on people? Do you think it has anything to do with confidence yeah. So <clears throat> the, the benefits are pretty, va- like pretty expansive. Um, <clears throat> definitely confidence. I mean, I know that in my personal story, I was, I mean, I didn't start having sex until pretty advanced age for like compared to the average. Um, and before that I had like absolutely no confidence because I was told that like people, if people liked you then they wanted to have sex with you and so like because I wasn't having sex I had no confidence yeah um, <laughs> then I also was like afraid of my body and my sexuality because I had no experience with it and so um and I hadn't taken time to connect to it how ridiculous um, can you imagine if everyone who liked you had sex with you yeah it's just like I have hundreds <laughs> of people having sex with me <laughs> I'm so well yeah. liked <laughs> it's <Yeah>. exhausting <laughs> Yeah. And, but like, once you start, um, uh, like not worrying about how your sexuality is determined by other people or like your, your worth is determined by like other people's interest in your sexuality. And you just start 
tapping into your sexuality because you're a sexual being and that's like a part of your identity. So you're accepting a part of who you are. Um, if, if you identify as a sexual being, I mean, there are people who are asexual, so maybe that wouldn't apply to them, but <clears throat> that is part of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, once I started like understanding my body and like being in tune with it a little bit more, I just like carried myself differently. And there was a lot of things that, that were at play in my life at that time. Um, but then people started like seeing that I was confident and I could like conduct myself in situations, um, with, with more control, more control over like a sexual scenario with a person and, and, um, feel confident saying no and feel confident saying yes, or saying, I want this instead. And that just changes your whole, I don't know, your whole, the way you carry yourself. Um, if you feel like you have agency over your body in that way, in addition to that. So there's, so there's this whole confidence aspect, but then there's also like, you're just being a healthier person if you are making the right choices for you. So like if you're doing things that you don't want to be doing, but you don't know how to, or feel like safe or confident saying no, um, you're making, you're not getting the things you need in your, in your sex life or in your life in general. Um, so you're just moving towards a healthier existence. And also, as we said earlier, there's this sense of peace, um, because your sexuality is like a huge portion of who you are. And, to not connect with that and feel like it's a separate scary part of you is so disjointing and so frustrating and can be the cause of a lot of other issues. Um, So there's this benefit of inner peace. There's this benefit of confidence. There's health, like also just having the knowledge about how your body works means that you know how to tune into your body and no one is not okay. Like when you need to go see a doctor <laughs> or yeah. if like your pH balance is off and you're like, hmm, I wonder if I'm doing something differently and I need to adjust or um, yeah, knowing the warning signs that something's off in your body is really important. And when you're not tuned in, then it's not really easy to pick up on those signs. Yes, I that's like that is the goal of about your body is to just try and educate people about what their body actually is, what it can do. And so then you know when something feels off. Whereas for example, I, we talked about this on um the podcast that I did for your podcast Carnal Theory. It's like yeah. um when like I thought that sex was just supposed to be painful because it had always been painful. Um, but if you are aware that sex is not supposed to be painful, then when sex is painful, you know something is wrong. <laughs> so that's like a very simple example. But um, that's why it's so important as well to talk about your period if you get your period, um, to know when. I think I endured, I endured like 10-day-long, really heavy periods for like a year And one day I was talking to my mom about it and I was like, I'm so fucking fatigued. Like, I'm so tired. And she was like, what are your periods like? And I told her, she was like, that is not normal. Get to the doctor now. (laughs) Like it's on the bell curve of normal, but it's not something that you should have to endure if you have other options. So the work that you're doing is amazing. And I love that phrasing um, agency over your body. 
like yeah. in the in the feminist circle, I think we talk a lot about agency, uh, autonomy, um, and self determination, and that is like the yeah agency is key, <laughs> absolute key. And I think you also touched on something really important, which is talking about your bodies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, you don't have to talk about your bodies if that's something you don't want to. But yeah, what because so many people don't talk about what's going on with their body and what their experiences have been like we don't feel comfortable talking to people about it and so not even like our family or our friends um like you don't have to go online and talk about your body you don't have to come on the podcast we do and talk about it but like (laughs) at least talk about it in your smaller circles and Mm -hmm. something we have at my sex bio is we have an online studio the my sex bio studio Mm -hmm. And that is mostly facilitated discussions and workshops. And um, it's really like our goal is to just foster a safe space where we're educating people, but also mostly we're providing a space to talk because talking is a therapeutic and like helps you work through things like myself. I can't just like sit in inner and like silently in my head, work through things. I need to talk through things. And um, that's how I learn more about myself. And so having this safe spaces to talk about your body and your sexual experiences and your sexuality is so empowering and so freeing. And that's a huge, a huge thing as well. Absolutely. And you brought up a very, very good point. You don't have to talk about your body or your sex life if you don't want to, um, and often I'm, I'm very comfortable talking about my body and I'm way less comfortable talking about my sex life. And that definitely plays into my sexual story. Um, but that's the, like, that's why my sex bio about your body and all of those kind of spaces exist so that you can go and just familiarize yourself with it. Um, and you don't have to talk about it until you're ready if you ever are ready, but it's so that, yeah, I, that's why I think, yeah, the work that we do is I wish it had come along earlier. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yes. And the this that leads really nicely into my next question for you actually so like the majority of my listeners are australian um 100 of you listening right now are apparently female uh interestingly enough uh, what a surprise um and in australia we have mandatory sex education in in schools high schools and primary schools but there's no unified curriculum so there are oh my God, I think eight states and territories in Australia. I don't know. I've always lived in the same one. But there are national guidelines, but each of those states uh, teach differently. And so the states are not obliged to follow the national curriculum like to a T. They don't have to follow it identically. So for example, like Victoria doesn't use the term contraception, apparently. Victoria is a state in Australia, whereas New South Wales does. Um, so I don't know what term Victoria uses. I don't know, um, abstinence, but it's not, uh, they're not using, like there's no national curriculum that has to be followed by law. So essentially Australia's sex education is like not clearly regulated. And I would love if you could outline whatever you know, America's a much bigger country, but could you outline for the listeners what sex education is like in schools in the USA? Um, and I would also love to know where are you from in the USA? <laughs> in the US. In the USA, can you say that? <laughs> you can say in the USA. I think okay. yeah. Um <laughs> it's all it all works. Um <laughs> so there are uh 50 states in the US and then there's like major out- outer li- outlying outer lying islands. Mm-hmm. Um so we don't have like a a national 
curriculum for sex education or national um, guidelines or standards. Um, so <laughs> it might, I'll tell you what my, I'm from Massachusetts originally um, okay. from near Boston and um, which is like a pretty liberal-ish area. It's a blue state. Um, so it's a democratic state and that's generally a more liberal party um but Wait, can i butt in for one second yeah. <laughs> thank you thank you yeah. sorry to the australian listeners we have a part we have the labor party and the liberal party and the liberal party is conservative that's not oh. what amanda means she means liberal as in the actual term liberal just want to clarify yeah. <laughs> so okay. liberal is that's like a- in my view good <laughs> yes. that's a really important distinction actually so Yes. So I'm going to say left, or maybe left leaning doesn't even work, but yeah, like. No, it's okay. I think now we've explained okay. it. It's fine. Yeah. Keep okay, going. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. No, yeah. <laughs> so generally like the, the parties are usually the um, Republican party is more conservative, mm-hmm. especially around like um, family quote unquote values. And then democratic is a little bit more um, liberal in that area, but also mostly like it's both parties are pretty conservative and pretty, <laughs> um, pretty entrenched in the systems. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to say I support either of those parties, but um, <laughs> yeah, I will say that the blue state of Massachusetts is generally pretty, uh, pretty forward thinking and progressive in their laws and their policies. And, um, and so I, I'll get back to, to that. So basically, in, as a whole, um, we don't have any national curriculum, as I mentioned, there's no like, right, you don't have to teach sex education in the US. But then the states have their own um, rules and regulations that, that this, they can, they can um, enforce. So I took some notes down because we were gathering some of this information when we were writing some grant language. And um, so I had it at, at hand and I wanted to reference it, but um, less than half the states in the US, so there's 50 of them, so less than half of them have made sex education mandatory, which means more, like a majority of the states um, don't have mandatory sex education at the state level. And then those that do have mandatory sex education, um, only 20 of them require it to be medically and factually accurate, uh, which is ridiculous. Okay. Um, (laughs) And then in 2018 study, uh, I don't think that there's been a more recent one at the moment, but there's a 2018 study that said that 18 states require sex education only to be in like the framework of sex occurring within marriage. So um, like sex being defined as like within marriage, um, which is just unrealistic and just not helpful. And only eight states require uh, consent to be a part of sex education. And then only 10 have um, healthy relationships as a part of their curriculum. So very low bars that you have to meet. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Like that's Um, so comprehensive, but that was a lot worse than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, and that's not even getting into like abortion laws, which are like ridiculous in the US. Um, there's a lot of really conservative people who do not want there to be access to abortion. Um, and that and abortion is not talked about in sex education because it's so controversial in the US. Um, like most schools, I'm sure it's the same in all over the world, but like if you're gonna 
like they don't want the parents coming in and being like, you taught my child this. Um, And so it's like, we're going to avoid anything controversial. And so um, a lot of things that shouldn't be are political in the US. So like, we can't even talk about climate change here without it being um, controversial. So um, yes, so it's bad. And then in my experience, uh, I was raised in central Massachusetts in like a pretty progressive uh, city. Um, well, I was raised in a, a tiny town outside of a city and, um, it was predominantly white and pretty like upper middle class. And so we had a very narrow understanding of the world. Um, and I think that's really important also, like when you're talking about sex education, uh, like inclusivity is so important, mm-hmm. um, inclusivity and accessibility. And when you're not inclusive, you're not providing every child with like the the information they need to take care of their body mm-hmm. um, but because we were all so like um mo- we were such a monoculture that um I don't think we were even aware that that there was things we weren't being told but um yeah so my experience was in fifth grade we were like put into two rooms boys and girls which right off the bat um, I have issues with because gender is a social construct and like that doesn't make sense and also like why wouldn't the boys learn about our bodies because how are they going to understand like how a female anatomy works that'd be a huge um, issue with separating boys and girls yeah. um especially yeah. can you imagine being um a trans kid in that class that just got like put in like that's a whole other thing but I have I have so many issues with that so many issues everyone <laughs> needs to be together because uh, people with vaginas should know uh, how a penis works and people with penises should understand how a vagina and a uterus work. Um, and yeah. And so, you should take into consideration that intersex people are like, there are a lot of intersex people in the world. And I don't think most people even know what that word means. <laughs> you're definitely not taught that yeah. at school, whether you're in Australia totally. or the U S yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So right off the bat, bad news bears. Um, and we were told we were shown this like really bad 80s video uh <laughs> about this girl getting her period and she just like wakes up suddenly in the middle of the night and like is that a sleepover and nudges her friend and says I have my period and then everyone wakes up and congratulates her and like pats her on the back and then they go to the store and it's really awkward when the older brother has to try and buy her tampons or they buy her pads not tampons um and uh that was pretty much it that was our sex education and we were in fifth grade and most girls already had their periods at that point. So didn't really teach anyone anything. And I don't know what the boys learned, but they were, we were told they were separated so they wouldn't have to learn about periods. And Ew. yeah, I don't want to learn about periods. It's disgusting. So, <laughs> I get um, so that was it. And then oh, in high school, it's so frustrating. <laughs> it's so frustrating. And um, then I think it was, my sophomore year in high school. I don't know how um, the grades go for you all, but so I was like, I think that's 10th grade for, oh no, 13. It was 10th grade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Okay. Yeah. It was 15 or 16. Um, and they, we had health class and that was a, every other week we'd have a gym period and that was health class. And we learned about STIs and, or STDs at that time is what they were referred to. And um, we just saw like pictures of the worst cases of STDs um, 
And then we were told that like, I was told if I sit on a toilet seat, I was going to get herpes and all this stuff that was super inaccurate. And, um, I remember, why are you lying why are you lying <laughs> awful. and then for the most part we watched modern family because she ran out of material to talk about okay. um so <laughs> she just had a dvd set of modern family so that was my <laughs> sex education and we did not oh and we learned how to put a condom on um and that was it so that felt pretty comprehensive compared to everyone else that I've heard stories of in my like friend circles in the in Massachusetts um a lot of other people had to watch the miracle of birth um which we did not have to watch and I don't think that watching that at in fifth grade is necessarily the right thing to do because mm-hmm. that's just fear um fear mongering around sex um but yeah, so that's pretty much what uh, sex is, sex education is like in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a huge effort, um, huge in comparison to what it has been um, by like independent organizations trying to get into schools and like get sex educators into schools to change that. Um, but that's not like a state regulated thing. It's like, a, I think it's, from what I understand, I think it's a school um, like accepting them into um, the classrooms as like another as like a auxiliary program right thank you that's so so helpful um yeah I thought Australia was bad but that's that's fucked um, <laughs> yeah. um we were shown um I've talked about this on another episode uh oh pardon me actually no I talked about this on somebody else's podcast um but in year six is what so sixth grade um in, in my primary school, which is like elementary school, we were taught, um, we were shown a video of, it was probably the miracle of birth, honestly. It was a woman giving birth very like violently <laughs> and it was traumatic. Um, and all of us were like, okay, adopt. <laughs> um, and what I love now are how many accounts exist online and platforms, etc., that teach that birth is actually, it can be, though, painful, difficult, etc., can actually be a very empowering experience um, and can be amazing. Um, and it's ironic that that video is called the, the miracle of birth because it makes it seem like anything, other, like anything but a miracle. It doesn't make it yeah. seem like a miracle whatsoever. Um, and then yeah. the other video that I remember being shown, it probably was more comprehensive um, than this but I only remember two parts but they showed us a cartoon like an Australian cartoon in year seven or eight um, and it was a girl waking up um, with blood between her legs um, and so when I got my period it was like in the middle of the day for the first time and I was like oh my god something's wrong you're supposed to wake up you, like you have to get it in bed <laughs> like you the bed is essential for period which is hilarious <laughs> interesting because I also thought it was like I'd start the day with my period one day yeah (laughs) I the first time I got my period I was like 16 or 17 actually I was pretty old I think I was 16 yeah I was pretty old I was also very um I was like very athletic at that point so I Mm. and I am today but I think that might have been why and my mom got hers when she was a lot older um Mm. But I was really scared because I wasn't getting it. And I thought a lot of things. Um, 
that were not correct. And, and you were like, um, it's that toilet seat I sat on. <laughs> yeah. For, I, for a long time, I was absolutely sure I had an alien baby inside of me. Oh, <laughs> like, thing. there has to be. That's um, so stressful. But, you should not yeah. have to experience that. <laughs> yes, I was very scared. And, um, but it wasn't, I finally got it, but I was absolutely certain that it was not my period because when you, what they don't tell you is like your first time getting your period is like dirty. Like it's like, you're like cleaning out your, mm-hmm. your uterus and everything. And so it's like brownish. Yeah. And, um, I thought that I was like defecating in my pants. Oh my god! I, like, I ran and I didn't tell anyone for like a day. I was like, something's wrong. Like, why do I keep Pooping myself. And, <laughs> oh my goodness, um, the lack I, of education. <laughs> and I ran out with my underwear on the second day and I showed my dad and I was like, dad, I need to see a doctor. He said, well, and then he said, well, no, I think you need to wait for your mother to come home and talk to her because I think you have your period. And I was like, this is not <laughs> my period. This is not my period. Um, and I was so frustrated and my mom came home and talked to me and I was like, so sure it wasn't, um, turns out it was, but yeah. Wow. That is a story. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's so like, yeah, you assume it'll be like this heavy flow of red blood, but in in reality, I don't, I don't know, maybe some people's first period is like that. Mine certainly wasn't. I don't know who anyone who's was. Um, and then also no one tells you that like, I don't know. Did you experience like nausea when you first started menstruating? I was like seriously nauseous for a while. Um, And that was really fucking annoying. I wish that hadn't happened. (laughs) It took me a long time. And again, like we aren't taught to really reflect on what our body is doing and like noticing patterns. And so I wasn't noticing this pattern that like the week before my period, I was having intense cramps. Um, Mm -hmm. and I thought I was like going to throw up or like that I maybe was really constipated and I was like, what is wrong? What is wrong? What is wrong? And then like five days later, I'd get my period Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, and then I was like, wouldn't remember the next month when that happened again. (laughs) That's what irritates me about the, the menstrual cycle and the, you know, uh, the entire cycle that our bodies go through is it, it, it's not just say your period is five days long it's not just five days it's like five days leading up to the period five days off the period and five days afterward where you're like starting to feel normal and then five days after that where you like need to have sex or you're gonna die and then (laughs) it just repeats it's like so never like it's not a five-day thing it's a 28-day thing (laughs) um yeah (laughs) look I know you're involved academically in early childhood literature am I correct in that yes yeah mm-hmm. amazing like with regard to sex education I would love if you have any insights on why it's important for young people and particularly children considering you do early childhood literature um, to understand sex and to understand maybe a sexual experience maybe they maybe a five-year-old is too young to learn exactly what like penetrative sex is but something along those lines do you have any thoughts yeah. Um, so we actually did a, a month about talking to children about sex um, back in 2019, I think. Wow. And um, additionally, yes, I'm getting my master's right now in early childhood literature and um, studying a lot about like holistic child development and 
like what ways, what are the ways in which children are learning or emerge, their knowledge is emerging um, through different uh, developmental stages or like fields of knowing, which is like the holistic version of a developmental stage. Mm -hmm. And um, basically sex education needs to start from birth. Um, And that's obviously going to look different for every like age and developmental stage. Um, Because yes, as you said, like you can't really explain like empowering penetrative sex like to a five-year-old like that's beyond their that's too advanced for them but Mm -hmm. um but you can start talking about the foundations of healthy sexuality and healthy body autonomy and um, anatomy and things like that so first of all like I just think it's really sad and kind of like a disservice to children when we're not using the proper terms for their body and when you're calling like your arm, your arm and your chest, your chest, and you're saying head, shoulders, knees, and toes, but you're calling their vagina hoo-ha and their penis like a wee-wee, like that doesn't make sense. (laughs) It doesn't, hey. (laughs) It makes them think like, this is something we can't even, it's like Voldemort, like you can't say the word. It's like he who shall not be named. Mm -hmm. And it's creating this sense that like these parts are, um, not to be talked about and not to be um, discussed with others. And so that's like, I, I do believe that like, yes, it is a private, your body is your space and you have the, um, you can choose to keep that for yourself or, or allow other people into that space, but to not give them the freedom to talk about their body, um, especially these parts of their body that are often um, really confusing to children because it's like what is this thing why am I constantly hiding it from the world yeah Um, so yeah just having the like using proper anatomy to talk about a body is so important and that's like birth that should be birth like you don't need to talk about um sex to talk about a vagina and a uterus and uh, mm-hmm. whatever. So, and a vulva, like you should be calling their vulva, their vulva. Like when they're going to the bathroom, they're wiping their vulva. Like, so that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is like consent, which I think is a big thing that people are talking about right now in terms of raising a child. Like that is um, kind of coming to the forefront of our conversations where we teach consent in like all aspects of life um, so that, they aren't getting older and like going into high school sex ed class and being like sex like this is lit and then like demanding it from others they like already know that consent it's like hardwired into their brain at that point it's just consent is essential and like not it's not something you even have to think about at that point because you just know yeah yeah exactly and then last would be um you and this is, of, of course, like everything changes with the child and with their age, but like you can answer any questions they have and um, having it be like a hush hush thing um, where they're like, what is, why is this person doing this on the TV? And then you're like, oh, don't worry. Like that's an adult thing. You're going to learn about it later mm-hmm. um, is making it seem like it's, it's not okay. And that it's like, 
maybe not, uh, it's just adding that taboo. It's adding that shame. It's adding this sense of um, secrecy and fear and all these different things. Um, and just being open and chill when your child asks you about sex. Cause I know that a lot of parents like freak out. Um, it's like, it doesn't need to be something to freak out over. It's just sex. Like it's how they were born. It's, it's what you do all the time, most likely. <laughs> and um, it's what they're going to be doing. And when your child is, I would say, when they're going through puberty, like sex needs to be talked about. And if they don't, if you've never talked to them before about it, they're not going to feel like there's a safe space to talk about it to you and you're their person. So, um, if you're their parent, but if, or, or if you're their guardian, um, or even a big sister, um, yeah. like my brother is six years old and I'm 26. And so, um, pretty sure I'll be the one he comes to because my parents are like old, a little more old fashioned. Um, but they're also like 60 something years old. So um, making sure that a child has someone in their life they can talk to about sex. And that means that you're, you're answering any question they have. Maybe if they, maybe you're not saying like the way you would say it to an adult, but you are answering their questions truthfully. Um, that's important. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Especially yeah. hearing it from someone who, you know, you've studied it, you have insight, knowledge about it. That's really, hopefully will be helpful to anyone who has a, a young child who's listening in particular. And I'm really happy that you touched on consent because that was going to be one of my questions later on is just like, how can we integrate that into, um, into sex education? And I just want to reiterate basically what you were saying is that sex education does not necessarily have to be about um, what we typically think of as sex. And I think like, thanks for bringing that up because that's so important is that sex education includes period talk, um, just talking about uh, the difference between the vulva and the vagina. Um, it's, I also think this is probably more of a theory. I haven't got as much basis with this, but there's definitely like the more that you, there's definitely, you know, some societal evidence to say that the more that you make sex this dark, secretive thing of like, oh, you'll learn about that when you're older, um, the more intrigued uh, people tend to get by it. And so if your goal as a parent or a guardian is to, uh, let's say, delay your child's um, sexual encounters um, and you want them to wait if you want them to wait till marriage you need to tell them what it is because they're not it's highly unlikely they're going to wait until marriage um, if sex is just this like really elusive concept that that's like that they know is good that's all I know about it is that it's like sex feels good but I don't know what mm -hmm. it is um, and yeah. then by the time they get to marriage like there's no guarantee it will feel good if they wait that entire time or it's no guarantee it will feel good whether you wait or not, I don't think that has anything to do with it. Do you think, I'm curious, I don't know your answer to this, do you think that part of understanding sex is is understanding what is right and wrong? Yeah, so I think that, yes, I do think that that is true, but I think that it's really easy to think that you can tell someone what is right and wrong when in reality, what is right and wrong is different for every single person. And the only time it's universal is when we're talking about consent. So if 
both or all parties in a sexual uh, encounter are completely consenting and enthusiastically consenting, um, nothing is wrong. Uh, unless like, of course, well, no, I, I can't really think of an instance. If someone is um, not consenting, that's not sex. That is yeah. assault. That is rape. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, if we're talking about sex, then and not counting non-consensual, I don't really think that there's like a right and wrong as long as you're like, you're living your truth in those moments. And I mean, you can even have like sexual experiences in which you're, you know, you're not owning your sexuality because you're still like coming into it and like figuring things out. Um, but that's okay. That's that maybe it won't be a great sexual experience, but um, nothing's wrong with that. That's, that's, it can be better than that, but that's not necessarily like inherently wrong, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And it's all progress and progress is different for different people. Some yeah. people at 13 are like ready to have penetrative sex straight away and yeah. other people are not ready to do that whatsoever mm -hmm. until they actually get married. And that's, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd also say um, quickly back on the topic of talking to children about it. Yeah. Um, there are also my, since my, my main area of focus is literature. Um, I will say there's a lot of really good books that you can be reading to your kids that will help with those things. Like maybe as a parent, you're like, I don't know how to talk to my kids about like their bodies. Like I wasn't taught that. Um, but mm -hmm. there are great books you can use like kids books that are out there that you can read together and um, having those, like reading those together, I think is important so that you know that you are, um, a safe and non-judgmental accepting person to come to and that you'll is, probably learn a lot <laughs> that's awesome yes that's amazing and they probably have really cute pictures in them too <laughs> they do, they do. and also there are a lot of really terrible books so make sure okay. you read the reviews <laughs> yeah very religious and and so just like figure out what you need from these books and then read their reviews okay Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome to know. Um, and if I can find any, I'll leave them in the show notes, but I've never read any because I don't have any young children in my life that I need to educate. <laughs> I'll send some to you. Oh, thank you. Amazing. Just go to mysexbio.com anyway. You'll find a lot of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Look, this is a bit of a different note, but the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, only as much as you would like to speak about it, of course, 100% on your terms, but um, online you've like really courageously spoken up about the abortion that you had. And I think that is so, so admiring considering that as we were touching on before, the US is has these crazy ideals about abortion. I know they differ from state to state, but let's take Alabama as an example. Um, and yeah. you and I, you and I have talked together about why it's so essential to talk about abortions, to raise awareness, reduce the stigma and eliminate the fear surrounding them. Whether you want to have one or not, I don't care. You, it's still essential that people talk about them for those reasons. Like, would you feel comfortable outlining sort of how enduring that um, perhaps rewrote or affected your sexual biography or like, or like what it, what it meant for you in that way? Yeah. So 
Yeah, as you said, I've been pretty outspoken about it on my social, my personal social media, and also um, through my sex bio, I held a discussion on abortion and, and used my experience with abortion as kind of the framework for that. Um, My big thing up until having found out I was pregnant um, was kind of this mentality, like, I'm totally pro-choice. Well, actually, Oh, let's go back even further. When I was in like, (laughs) probably up until my freshman or sophomore year of college, um, I think my mentality was, uh, and this was before I think I'd ever had sex. I, um, my mentality was I totally support like anyone to do whatever they want with their bodies, but I would never have an abortion. And that was just like, I don't even really know why I thought that. I think I just thought I couldn't do it. That's like really I, common. A lot of people think that. Totally. Yeah. Um, as I started having sex, um, I think I just was like, I'm not a standing by that opinion. <laughs> I can't have a baby. Um, and so I was, then I changed and I changed, shifted more towards like, I can't have a baby right now. Like I can't support them and I would not be able to be the parent I want to be. Um, and so then I kind of was like, I, I wouldn't be, I came to this point where I was like, I'm having sex. And I, I have decided that like, if I get pregnant, I will not carry this child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but that was like, so like worst case scenario. I was like, it's never going to happen. Of course I was on birth control and I was using protection. Like I was using condoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, was with my partner, who's now my husband, we weren't using protection, but I was on birth control and we had been together like consistently for a while, like a year and a half or so at that point. Mm-hmm. And, um, we had just gotten engaged actually. And like two or three days later, I found out I was pregnant and that was like this sudden shift in, um, what's, sex was for like for a little bit um because I was like oh crap like all of this awesome fun stuff like just led to this this horrible feeling inside of me and so that was really hard um at first to I thought for a while that like I was not gonna have to I was just like not gonna have sex because I was so scared of it for a second um but that didn't last that long because then I was pregnant for quite a while um until the abortion actually took it took multiple attempts um and so that's something they don't tell you there's the whole process actually tell me quite a lot but I'll get to that in a second Mm -hmm. so I um was pregnant for quite a while and then found found that like I was already pregnant, so I might as well still be intimate with my, the man I love. So um, (laughs) then I was like that, I I think being, I was not with him when I found out Um, he, we work or did work in this, these backcountry facilities with like no cell signal. So um, he was off in this like backcountry facility where you can like only access it through like five miles of hiking. Um, And I was at our house. And so that was when I was like most um, kind of feeling really uh, like angry at my body and my sexuality. And then um, when he came into the picture and we could like talk about it mm-hmm. um, and like came to some conclusions, it felt like so much better. 
that that feeling of like solid, like isolation really, uh, messes with you. And, um, I, so the whole thing that happened is that I found out I was pregnant. I was about eight weeks pregnant or so. Um, and then I was on my mom's insurance. So we had to go down to Massachusetts. And at this point I was living in New Hampshire, which is like a, uh, like three and a half hour drive away. Um, and so we'd have to take time off of work and like do a day trip down to Massachusetts and go to the facility, the Planned Parenthood facility there, mm-hmm. um, for the appointment. And then I said, I wanted to get a medical abortion because in mass in um, in the United States, I think in most States, actually, you are not allowed to have anyone in the room with you. Um, not even for like the questioning part or the ultrasounds or anything, um, because they just like want to eliminate any possibility of coercion. So, okay. and I don't know if that's how it is in Australia, but, um, yeah, it's kind of scary because you're like all alone. No, and- that's not how it is here, actually, because I used to work in a center where we did medical termination. Well, not me. I-, I worked in the center and the doctor did medical terminations and you could go in with your partner and it was encouraged. Oh. Like, yeah, have your partner come in with you. So you're not alone <laughs> if you have a partner. Um, yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. We actually have these, um, well, I don't really know how you find these people, but my (laughs) friend is an abortion doula. And so they are like technically a medical professional who's allowed to accompany you um, and help that process. Um, But I don't know, like I had not known that those existed. I only knew because it was like a very close friend who was working as one. But um, so I don't know how you would access an abortion doula, but um. So I did, I opted to take the pills as like a, um, a, a medical abortion at home mm-hmm. and that way we could be together. But then apparently there's a 2% chance that that won't work. So then I, it failed and I had to go back and they found out that I was still pregnant and um, had to go back to, it was like a three, it ended up being three multiple like weekend trips to Massachusetts um, to finally get like an in-clinic procedure done so that it would be terminated. And mm-hmm. uh, it was like really educational. And I think that that's, you know, not everyone's gonna have the same, everyone's gonna have a totally different experience, but not, and everyone's gonna have a um, different like outcome, like emotional and et cetera outcome. Um, and while for me it was, really sad and hard um because I really want to be a mom um I like am studying child development and like absolutely adore children and my husband and I are really really excited to be parents but we're also really young and like do not have financial security um and so uh and also want to live our lives and um so, so it was hard for me because I really was like mourning that loss. And also, in addition to that, I also can see like a huge benefit of it because I learned so much. So there's these different, like, this is a really long-winded way of answering your question of how I love it. it. Thank you. Story, <laughs> <laughs> which is that it, it influenced it in so many ways. Like um, I now like have been through my worst case scenario. I mean, there's other worst case scenarios, but this is um, one of my biggest ones. And I like persevered through it. And I feel like when I look back on that, like I feel really strong 
And I feel like, okay, I can do this. Like I definitely never, ever want to experience that again, but like I did it. And like, I know that I made the right choice for myself. And that is something that I'm really proud of. And it, of course, like that doesn't mean I'm not sad about it, but I can still see these positive outcomes in it. And so that kind of helps me like stay connected to my sexual, my sexual self, my sexual identity. And, um, also it makes me realize that there's so many facets to like who we are and, and who, who we can be. I'm trying to think of the way to describe, to, to vocalize the emotion I'm feeling. Sometimes there's not really the right words, but, um, but I also realized that there was nobody that I knew who had had an abortion, but like there was people I knew who had had an abortion, but I just didn't realize it. Yeah. And so I, no one around me that had had an abortion was, had talked about it or was um, sharing that with, with the world and, um, or with me. And so I felt really alone and there was like groups they give you like pamphlets when you're leaving but like I've never really been one to kind of just like sign on to a chat room um I feel more I just would feel like more reassured if it was someone in my day-to-day life because they tell you all these statistics like one in four women have an will have an abortion in their life I'm like okay well I know a lot of women and none of them have had an abortion mm-hmm. um but they have, they just aren't talking about it. And so I was like, I know some of you aren't telling me something (laughs) and I really would love to have like a person to talk to about this. Um, And like my husband and my loved ones are like really great and would listen if I needed to talk, but it's not the same. Um, And so I was like, okay, it's been a year and a half. I'm going to talk about it. Like I can't be um, silent anymore because I'm just being the person that I was so frustrated with because I knew that they weren't talking about it. And it's, it's not that I'm frustrated that they aren't talking about it because they're totally, they, everyone who's had an abortion can, can be as private or as public as they want, but we need to feel like we can talk about it if we want to, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. I think after like a year and a half of like, it was kind of my thing that I was processing and going through. I was like, I really need to be the person that I needed. And so that's why I came out on social media with this, with my story. And I was like, you know, I'm done not talking about it because it's, it happened. And like, I'm not ashamed of it in any way. And like all the people in my life that I know in interpersonally, um, I was fine talking to them about it because I, I wished I had that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also because no one's talking about it, I had no idea like anything I was going to go through. So I was not prepared. Um, and that's a huge way that it affected my sexual story is I learned so much about abortion because I had no clue what, I didn't even know there was a medical option. Like I thought it was just, you'd go into the clinic and they would like use the, I don't know what it's called, but the suction device to take the um, fetus out. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know I had another option. So that was a huge thing. And I also 
didn't know I couldn't have someone in the room with me. I didn't know about abortion doulas. I didn't know so many things. I didn't even know like how, so when we were going to go into the procedure, they're like, do you have any questions? And I said, um, yeah, like what's about to happen? Like, I don't know. I don't understand yeah. what the procedure. <laughs> um, mm. So that's like this huge like lack in our society is um, because we're not talking about it we don't know anything. And because we don't know anything, we are so scared of it. And absolutely. Yeah. I watched this documentary, this HBO documentary called abortion women's stories tell, um, about abortion. And there was a lot, it was a lot of, um, the anti-abortion protests in the U S was highlighted most in, um, um, Michigan, I think is where it was. And, um, they, were like giving their reasons as to why they oppose abortion and their reasons were just based out of like inaccurate facts like just not not realistic understandings of what an abortion is Um, so yeah I would say that that is a huge way in which it affected my sexual story because it educated me on my body and on like what this whole process is and is like um and it also just empowered me to be confident in my decisions as like a womb owner thank you so much i think that'll be like thank you for sharing the bravery that you just have put out there over the past i don't know when did you first come onto social media talking about it Um, in january Okay, yeah, so the past two months then. (laughs) Um, That is so valuable and I guarantee someone's listening to this and is like, oh, thank God. I'm so happy that she expressed similar feelings to how I felt. And I think there's this huge misconception. I think the conception that bothers me the most actually about about abortion is that people think um, that people who have abortions just like hate babies. And that's why you, that's why you had one. And they think that they weren't careful as well. And also one, none of your business if someone was careful having sex or not, but two, you just expressed you were on birth control mm-hmm. and somehow still fell pregnant. That's mm-hmm. like you said, worst nightmare. That's what everyone is trying to avoid. And like, it's just, it's just very unfair. The onus that is put on people who have uteruses to, all the onus is put on people of uteruses. There's no onus on anybody else. Um, it takes two to tango. You can't get pregnant by yourself. Just like point that out. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. My goodness. Yeah. Unfortunately, with contraception, and I'm doing a series on contraception at the moment, it's literally just cost and benefit analysis. It's like what, like in, for example, I've been taking the contraceptive injection and over, if you take that for multiple years, which I now have, so I'm coming off of it. um, If you take that for multiple years, you will end up with like a severe bone mineral density loss. And so it's like bone mineral density loss or pregnancy. (laughs) Like what, what do you choose? Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of ridiculous because that is, <laughs> so that's the give and take there for people with vaginas and people mm-hmm. with wombs. And um, they were developing a male birth control, but they found that it like caused uh, like mood swings and cramping and all this stuff. 
and uh, they were like too dangerous <laughs> i know there's so many people ask me about male contraceptions actually because they're like so other than condoms for people with a penis what what is there um and it's like well actually they've done heaps of clinical trials and developed all of these contraceptive methods but um it causes headaches so you just can't yeah can't put yeah, on the market unfortunately bone density or yeah. the bone loss but, of bone density yeah you can oh, it's okay well she's gonna be um early on she's gonna have early on to arthritis but we really don't yeah. want that man to have a headache <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty nuts it's crazy and um yeah that's <laughs> um and yeah I'm very 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 sorry to hear that you had to go through such an emotional and like what sounds like traumatic but I don't know if it felt traumatic for you um experience especially considering like you tried to have a medical abortion and it didn't fucking work that's so rare and I think what you touched on is something that people some listeners who haven't had an abortion or maybe who don't know that they know anyone who's had one like have not talked about it Um, I think probably the most important point in my opinion that you brought up is that uh, you felt really sad and it was hard and I think people assume that like I said if you have an abortion you hate babies which is like absolutely ridiculous no one talks about the effect that it has on the person who has the abortion and it's and even with with birth with people who actually do choose to carry their baby to term and give birth there's so much um emphasis so much focus on the um on the baby and on the health of the baby and the yeah and there's like nothing on the mother it's like it doesn't it's almost like the mother is like a vessel to bring a child into the world but she doesn't matter any people with uteruses listening you are not a vessel for childbearing if you want to have a child that is amazing and that is like that is incredible it's not something that you have to do and it's not something that is just that happens to you it's like it's this incredible thing and you get to have a baby at the end of it if that's what you want (laughs) yeah and I would say also into that um another aspect of pregnancy um that is not talked about nearly enough is miscarriages because so many people experience miscarriage and yeah no one talks about it um so that's another miscarriage you are so not alone millions of women are experiencing it and and they're not provided the spaces to talk about it or um the resources to work through that the misconception that arises there is that um people often think like oh she had three children so she was pregnant three times. <laughs> uh, yeah. But in reality, she was probably pregnant five times and she had two miscarriages and they were probably incredibly hard for her. Yeah. Um, and even hard for the, the parent who's not giving birth as well or who's not pregnant, I should say, sorry. Um, it's, it's hard on everybody for the most part and I really, really feel um, for people who endure that. And the reality is that almost everyone who has a baby has endured that like the yeah. statistics are huge yeah. um so thank you thank you for talking about that and I could literally talk to you for hours but I think we almost have talked for hours so I'm gonna wrap <laughs> this up <laughs> but you are just the best and like thank you thank you for chatting to me you were so I didn't um I didn't realize how close in age we were either because you are so much more accomplished than me that I was like well I'm, no, I'm a baby <laughs> but the question that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast and I'm really excited to hear your answer is 
What is one thing or more than one thing that you wish you had known about your body when you were younger? Yeah. So I wrote on a, I wrote on three things for this. All right. Tell me um, all of them. <laughs> the first one is that um, virginity is a myth uh, that was like invented by the patriarchy. That is like number one, because everything I was taught about virginity, like just instilled so much fear in me about uh, my first time having sex. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, almost all of it was inaccurate. Um, my second <laughs> thing is that kind of still in line with virginity is that your first time having sex is going to be this like super painful, like bloody experience that is like, you just need to grin and bear it and get through it. And that is just so like, maybe for some people it is pretty painful, but like, it's not like, if it's really painful, it's probably you need to be doing something different or like your body is not um, in the space it needs to be. And, or, or you need to connect to your body and maybe see a doctor because there's probably something else going on. Um, And telling people that it's telling people, sorry, that it is painful makes it painful (laughs) because then they go in scared. (laughs) You're like 10 step embraced and you're, you're scared (sighs) because you think it's going to hurt. And so therefore you are clenched up and not open and excited and ready to receive, um, during if, if you're having penetrative sex for your first time um yeah. and that is kind of just that this huge you know part of this huge overarching problem which is that health um health um sex education is so often framed around like fear and what not to do because this will happen and all that like and so we're all about at my sex bio is changing that to be not like a fear-based education, but an empowering education so that, um, you are excited and like connected to your body and not like, oh my God, one mm-hmm. day I'm going to try and shove something inside my body and it's going to hurt so bad. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be terrible. Um, because for men or for people with penises, sorry. Um, so often the narrative is like pleasure focused and for people with vaginas so often it is like all the things that can go wrong. So. Absolutely. And yeah, I think honestly, the more, if somebody never told you that sex was going to be painful, I really wonder like if they could do some experiment where they get a thousand kids a thousand teenagers and tell them your first time is going to be painful and get a thousand teenagers and tell them your first time is not going to be painful. I wonder what the statistics would end up being. (laughs) I think it makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And you're not going to like suddenly (laughs) wake up or not even wake up, but just like the instant after you've had sex for the first time, like the world is not suddenly colored like a different color and like <laughs> understand sex now. Um, it's like, so not. It's not uh, Pleasantville where everything is in black and white until you yes. have sex and then you turn exactly. colored. <laughs> yes. And the last thing is that um, I wished that in sex education, they had taught us how to like identify what your body is telling you. And your body totally knows how to communicate with you. It's always giving you different signs. Like you, you're taught that when you get a scratchy, um, like feeling in your throat, you have probably a cold coming on. So you should prepare and like drink more orange juice or whatever. Um, but you're not told like, oh, today my discharge is like more milky than usual. And so that means X, Y, Z. Um, 
And honestly, I couldn't tell you why that would even mean. I don't think I even know that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't either. And I run an account about like an account. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that also brings up a point that like, you're not even talked, we don't even talk about discharge. Like the word discharge probably would scare a, a 13 year old, but um, yeah, like I know when I was younger and I first started ovulating and I would have this like egg white come out of my body. And I was like, mm, what's happening? And, <laughs> yeah. and I tried to explain it to my mom and she was like, I don't know. And then I was like, what do you mean you don't know? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, so you still think there's something wrong with you? Oh my exactly. goodness. None of us are taught anything. And mm. so, yeah. And so understanding like discharge and like the different things your body does to, to signal like different, different um, needs or like if something's going well, how you know that, not just things that are going wrong. Um, because if you're only again talked about what's going wrong, then you're just like, oh my God, so many things can go wrong. Um, but your body's so cool and knows so much and like can tell you so many things if you just know how to listen to it. Um, and when you're afraid of your body or like don't know how to talk to it or like don't understand the words for the body parts, like how are you going to know what's going on in your body absolutely and the like I think a really good example of that is the traditional way that people knew they were pregnant is like your period just doesn't arrive um but that actually like look yes usually that does happen um but number one if you wait for your period to arrive um you could be eight weeks pregnant whereas if you are educated on the like you could be eight weeks pregnant when you find out if you're educated on all of the other signs of like, oh, I started, you know, all of the possible signs, there's so many, but say like, oh, I seem to be vomiting like all the time, but I haven't actually eaten anything bad or something like that. Or like my boobs are really sore already. Um, and then you might be able to find out that you're pregnant at like two weeks and then you've got so much more time to deal with it, decide what you want to do, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, so it's like the education about, what your body is signaling signaling to you really good point i actually had never thought of that one and that is a perfect answer to that question thank you <laughs> also i was just thinking about how another thing that i that i that was added to my sexual story or like that i learned through this experience cuz this this abortion experience was obviously like a huge part of my sexual story that is like a big part of the timeline in that first inner circle Um, is that I now know I can get pregnant, which I think is like a huge um, question mark for a long time for a lot of people. And my husband, when we first met was like, my biggest fear is that I cannot have kids. Mm. Um, He was so sure that he was sterile. I don't remember why, Um, (laughs) but it turns out our like seeds are perfectly fine. And when we when they merge to make a fetus, the fetus is like very resilient and will not, will do everything it can to stay. In <laughs> body. Um, so that just like that in, in and of itself taught me a lot about my body. And like, you know, now I know that if I want to have kids, I probably will be able to, which is really exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy next time, but um, at least I know I can, that can happen. And that's a huge plus. That's great. I can't wait until you get to live your dream of being a mom whenever you are actually ready for that. And I'm so glad that we have the opportunities now that you get to sort of control that part of your life that we all get to 
somewhat control that part of our life. I'm so grateful that that exists. Well, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your insights, your wisdom, your academic knowledge, your non-academic knowledge, all of it. You're amazing. I want everybody to go to the My Sex Bio Instagram page. I want everybody to follow Amanda on both accounts that I'll leave in the show notes uh, and also check out the My Sex Bio podcast called Carnal Theory. It's really good. And I actually listened to it even though I was on the episode. I listened to other people's episodes. That's how I know it's good. I don't just listen to the one episode that I'm on. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on the show. You are wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. And yeah, if I, I hope that um, this episode just gives people something to reflect upon. I hope so too. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the About Your Body podcast. I hope you found joy and comfort in learning about the bio-female body and the power that it holds. In the show notes, you will find links to the About Your Body Instagram page, which is full of free resources and illustrations explaining bio-female anatomy, as well as a link to the About Your Body Etsy store, where my art is available for purchase. And if you're a business organization or entrepreneur working in the women's health or women's empowerment space, we could work well together please reach out to me via my website, which is www.byracholholt.com if you'd like to hire me for graphic design or artistry services. Until next time, here's to learning about our bodies.